I want to warn you, I have a, a prop here that I'm going to use later on in the service. And so if you have sensitivity to really bright light, I'm just going to warn you, this uh, thing will light up like a torch, all right? So just I'm going to put you on notice on that, all right? So you've been warned, due diligence there, I've, I've done my part to warn you on that. So we're going to get to that later. We're back in the book of 2 Corinthians as you're going to chapter 4. And we're just way of illustration kind of for this passage. I think back to the time right out of college, my very first, what I would call real job. So this was the job, you know, you get where you actually work 40 hours and you're on salary instead of clocking in. And so this job was to develop employment opportunities for people who had disabilities. And so I was tasked to go out and meet with employers. And so if you're 21 years old and, you know, you're kind of nervous going into these big places and meeting with people. And so I typically obviously would call ahead a lot of times. And so I called this bank and arranged a meeting with the HR director um, at, the, at this big bank in downtown Chattanooga. And so very intimidated, a small town guy from West Virginia. You know, I, the town I grew up in was like 4,000 people, no tall buildings. And so going there was intimidating enough. And this was one of my first calls. And so I, I went up and I found out something that, you know, most of us who've been around now for a while, you know, to be true is that sometimes you can ha- a person can have an assistant who's a bulldog, right? I mean, who just will not let you get to see the main person. And so here I was, I walked in insecure, not, you know, in command and come in and kind of mumble that I had an appointment or I felt like I had an appointment with the HR director and, and she began to press me and talk to me and basically try to talk me out, it seemed like, to a meeting with the HR director. Well, fortunately, the HR director heard this and came out and rescued me and saved me and brought me back into and brought me into the main office. And I think that, that that that's a really good picture of what Paul is going to be teaching in this passage. That oftentimes we can try to keep people from Jesus, whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally. That we make it more about us, kind of like Mitch said a minute ago. It's more about us and about Jesus, and we're going to keep people out here. And Jesus is the main person. All right. I'm just uh, the person in the outer office, and you're just the person in the outer office. Jesus is the one that we need to get the people into. He's the main attraction, right? He's the one that can do something. And so Paul, as he talks in this passage, he's going to speak of some obstacles and some things that we do and don't do that keep people from seeing Jesus clearly. And so I, I think these will be really helpful for us as we want to be a light for Jesus and shine for Jesus. So chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 today. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll look at this. Father God, we thank you for scriptures like today to remind us that life isn't about us, 
that you have great purposes and a plan and you're doing something in this universe and you're building your kingdom. And God, I pray you'll just make us aware of our tendency to turn life about us, to be self-vision, self-centered, only seeing ourselves, keeping people in that outer office and not taking them to you, God. And I pray that you'll just teach us your truth today and just help us to respond by being doers of the word, not just hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What ministry is he talking about? Well, all of chapter 3, Paul's been talking about he is an ambassador, he's a minister for the new covenant. What is the new covenant? If you go back to chapter 3, verse 6, if you flip back there, he said, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. So Paul has been contrasting the law and the Mosaic system, the Mosaic covenant, with this new covenant, and some of the verses that were put on the screen between songs, great to point to this idea that God, this wasn't something Paul developed or Paul came up with. God had been pointing to this new covenant a long time in the Old Testament through the prophets that he was doing something great, and he was going to do something amazing. And that's what Paul is now, I would say he's one of the lead spokesmen, if not the lead spokesperson for this new covenant. He says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. He says, I want to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, again, the contrast here, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he emphasizes faith in comparison to the system of the Old Testament of the law where people felt they had to work and earn and keep. And the purpose of the law wasn't so they could keep the law and find salvation. The purpose of the law was to show them that you can never measure up, you can never be good enough, that no matter what you do and how hard you try, you cannot earn your holiness because God is perfect, he's righteous, and we can't be, and we need a Savior. So as I said last week, the people were unprepared for Jesus because they felt like they could do it. They felt like they could manage and keep the law, but they downgraded the law to a place where they could keep it, and they did not really see the law as Jesus exposed, which was in the Sermon on the Mount, like, look at the heart, right? You think you're keeping it, but your heart is wrong. It's evil. It's bad. And so Jesus showed them the higher um, level of the law that says it's not just about your actions, it's about your heart. And so in his mercy, Paul says, God has called him and every believer, for that matter, into ministry. And so it's easy to read this and you think, well, I'm not a preacher, right? I'm, I'm not a teacher even. And so you think that sometimes when these languages talked about being a minister, that you're off the hook for that. But Paul presents us, everyday, everyday normal Christians, in a very high way. and high. He puts you on a high pedestal when it comes to your responsibility for the gospel. Let me just read uh, for you from 1 Peter. This is what Peter said. But you are a chosen race, that's you and I, a royal priesthood. That's not just myself or Mitch or the elders. You are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you have a ministry. What is your ministry? What is your ministry? Well, your ministry is people, everyone you come in contact with, but God has also given you spiritual gifts to use in that ministry. Every believer receives at least a spiritual gift at salvation to be used 
if, if you haven't come through Intro to Grace, I encourage you to come to Intro to Grace in the following membership classes because we talk about spiritual gifts and how that God has given each person a gift to use to edify and to build up the church. And so Paul says God has called him into this ministry, just like he's called you and I into this ministry. And so Paul says, we do not lose heart. What does it mean by not losing heart? He's talking about we don't get exhausted. We don't get discouraged and stay there. We don't get wounded and just quit. We are not spiritless, but we bring energy. We bring our enthusiasm. We bring our heart into this ministry. And sadly, I know many people, very much like the illustration Justin said about Jane Brinkerhoff and the person in the church there, who just get discouraged. Something happens, somebody didn't speak to you that you expected to speak to you, or that you know you felt like you were slighted in this way or that way, or something happens in ministry, it's not quite as successful as you thought it should be, and people just get discouraged, and they just quit. And, and, and maybe you're still here, but maybe you just quit. You've just quit serving because it's difficult, it's hard, or it's discouraging, or you're just exhausted. And so, Paul tells us that they don't lose heart. If anybody had a reason to lose heart, it's Paul. Right, he's beaten. He's shipwrecked. I mean, all these horrible things have happened to Paul along the way, but he says, we don't lose heart. And losing heart is such a sad thing. I, I had a friend out of college who became a senior pastor, a lead pastor, very soon afterwards, probably in his mid to late 20s, which I thought was not a good idea uh, because of the pressures of ministry. But he was a very gifted guy, a great communicator, just loved people. But the, the strangest thing, like he, he told me some years later, he, he said, we were, my wife went to lunch with some ladies from the community, a few ladies from church. And this seems very innocent to us, but he said that one of the ladies said to his wife, you're the pastor's wife, so you pray for the mill. And it just like took her back. She was like, why do I always have to be the one to do these things, right? And she like panicked and freaked out because here she was, a young mom, and all this responsibility was on her and this spiritual um, focus that she was supposed to be this leader, and I don't think she was prepared for it, and so he left vocational ministry. Now, I'm here to say I ran into them a few years ago in Chattanooga, crossing the bridge there, uh, just randomly ran into them, and they're both serving God, not vocationally, but they're still serving God, but, but he left the ministry over the fact that his wife lost heart at that point. She became discouraged, exhausted at that point in ministry. And so it's very easy to do. And I'm going to encourage you, don't. Don't lose heart. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. And so Paul's going to expound more on this later on in this chapter. But he talks about in verse 16 on down. We'll see this in a couple of weeks. He mentions this again in verse 16. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, so not only is he getting older and weaker just because of time, but he's taking a lot of abuse physically, but he says our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so Paul was determined to fulfill the ministry that Jesus had given him and the mission that Jesus gave him, and nothing could deter him from that. And so he says, day by day, I'm being renewed. It's like this body, I'm getting older, right? But the inside of me, my heart, is getting younger because the more I fall in love with Jesus, like the more excitement I have for his name. Now, of course, as we get older, physically, we become less able to do certain ministries, of course, but there's still plenty of ministry to do, even if you find yourself feeble or injured or weak. And so I encourage you to, 
Ask God what he has for you and to serve God regardless of what your outward self feels like and is wasting away and and use what God has given you, understanding that it's really all of us can go through periods of time where things can be discouraging and difficult. I would say probably for my personal ministry, the last couple months, there's been some things that I've had to uh, deal with within the church and on the peripheral of the church that I've not dealt with before at this level. And if you put your focus on you and your abilities and your talents and what you bring to the table, it is discouraging. It's exhausting. It can be because people rarely do what you expect them to do and want them to do. And so you keep your eyes upon Jesus and you know that you have enemies. You have the flesh that's battling against you. And I said this last week, you can't reform the flesh. I don't care if you've been a believer for 50 years, you cannot reform the flesh. It's always going to be there to trip you up. What you can do is walk in the spirit and then you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so we got the, the, the flesh warring against us. We have the devil who's real and he's personal. He's not just some personification of evil. Satan is, is a real being and he's out to get us. And then there's the system of the world that I don't have to explain to you is anti-God, right? It's all anti-God. So the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly coming at us. So losing heart is easy to do, but we don't lose heart, Paul says, because we're renewed day by day. Now, I'm not sure Paul had in his mind here, day by day, having a day by day quiet time. But you know what? I know he had in mind. He definitely had in mind the idea that day by day, we need to depend upon Christ Christ's example was, what did Jesus do? He went and met with his father in private. He got his marching orders from his father. Even though he was God, he depended upon God the Father for what he was to do and God's will on earth. As an example, I think, mostly for us to see that it's daily dependence upon God. Now, we should depend upon God every single moment of every single day. We should be constantly in prayer, and we should always be mindful of him and his will and what he wants for us. But we, I, I, we advocate here, and I think it's so critical, that daily you have intentional time where you spend with God. And you open his word, and you prayerfully read his word, and seek him in prayer. I promise you, if you begin to develop that habit, that God will use that time to mold you and shape you more and more like Christ. He's going to reveal the secret things of your heart you're going to become a self-feeder. You're going to be so much more eager to do the ministry that God has called you to do because every day you're saying, I need this renewal day by day. I need you to show me what's really important. I need perspective on this life. The perspective, I want you to give this as a visual illustration. Again, I've done it before, but one time I put a rope here, stretched from that side of the gym to that side of the gym, a white rope with a little red spot marked up on it. And I said, that little spot is your life compared to eternity. And you're looking back there, and you can barely even see the dot on the rope because our lives are very small compared to eternity. And Paul keeps his eyes upon the eternal perspective, not this little sliver of space and time that he's been given, although he wants to use his time for the glory of God and use all of his energies for that. He understands that he won't be discouraged if he keeps the big picture in mind. And so we must keep perspective. If we don't keep perspective, then these afflictions that are light and momentary, the Scripture says, they will become much bigger and overbearing and overwhelming to us. And so 
We, I think most of you sitting here would say, I, I believe that. I believe my life is small compared to eternity. But do we live in light of that is the question. Paul Tripp talks about having identity amnesia, and I like that's a good term for it, right? It's, it's forgetting who we are, why we're here, what really matters. And so maybe that word will stick with you, that phrase will stick with you, identity amnesia this week when you start to let your mind stray away and, and to think about things and do things that aren't pleasing to him. So Paul says in Galatians, don't let us grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. There will be a time of harvest. You give up, you give up, you won't see it. Keep faithful, stay faithful. And so today, as part of this text, I, I wanna pull out four things that cause people to reject the gospel. And the first one is, God's ministers, and again, not just talking about me here, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about each one in here, the names and the name of Christ, we lose heart. When ministers for the gospel lose heart. I'm going to pause here to say, because maybe you're thinking, well, I can cause people to reject the gospel? How does that work? Let me just tell you, there's a lot of things that are paradoxical in Scripture, and let me just define that in case you don't familiar that word. It's things that seem to be a contradiction, but they're not. They're true. Let me give you some examples in Scripture of things that are paradoxes that sometimes we struggle to make sense with. Faith is a gift from God. He gives faith, but we are commanded to believe. God predestines those who will be saved based on his sovereignty, yet the Bible teaches that God offers salvation to everyone and that people are accountable for what they choose. All right? I can't explain it. It's a paradox of Scripture. The same thing is true here. Salvation is the work of God from start to finish. But Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, And how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him whom they've never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how, can, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so very clearly it says that there has to be a presentation of the gospel message and that has to precede saving faith. And so our job, our task is not to grow weary, to not to lose heart. Don't give up. Don't get your eyes on what's immediately in front of you. Keep your eyes upon the eternal perspective and realize that God's the one who does the saving, but our job is to clearly present the gospel message to people. And the way that God typically brings people to Jesus is through the proclamation. And when I say preaching, you think of me standing here talking, but I'm talking about the proclamation of the gospel at your work, in your K group, in your fight clubs, everywhere you go, the proclamation of the gospel brings the people to Jesus. That's what God uses. He could have used an angel. He could have used a messenger. He chose to use the preaching of the gospel. So Paul says, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to lose heart. I don't care how bad my critics are. I don't care how hard the church at Corinth pushes back against me. I'm not going to be stopped by the Jews. I'm not going to be stopped by the Romans. I'm not going to be stopped by the false teachers who have come into Corinth and who are attacking me. I will not be stopped by any of these people. In fact, I won't be stopped by the false teachers. He says in verse 2, I'm going to expose these false, false teachers. He says, I'm going to show you that these false teachers use manipulative and insecure tactics. Look at verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. What was Paul thinking of there when he talked about disgraceful, underhanded ways? Well, again, the best way to interpret Scripture 
if you're studying the Bible and you're trying to figure this out, the best way to interpret the Scripture is within context, immediate context, like the verses around or the, the chapters right around the passage of Scripture you're trying to figure out. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So all we have to do is flip back to verse 17 of chapter, I believe it's chapter 3, I forgot to put the chapter number, where he said this, he said, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So he says, we're not like these people who peddle the gospel for personal gain. I've told you before that in Corinth, they elevated people who could come in with great uh, skills of speech. They could stand up and control a crowd. They could just uh, really present their truth philosophically in such a way that people were in awe. And these people were like elevated to celebrity status in, in these situations. But Paul says, we're not like those people who peddle just so we can collect a paycheck here. He says, we refuse to do things to manipulate to make the gospel more appealing. He says, we don't do these things. These things were done in Paul's day, and they're still being done today. How are they still done today? How are, how are people trying to manipulate the gospel so it gets a better appeal Many preach the gospel without sin or judgment, right? There's one popular preacher on TV. He's like, oh, I just want to be positive, right? You can't tell the gospel without presenting the bad news. It's impossible. Only focusing on the practical implications of sin, helping people get along, helping marriages get better, rather than speaking the truth of God's word completely and totally. So God's word, if you look at the epistles and the letters that Paul wrote particularly, he always spent the first half of the book unpacking the truths of God, the imperatives of God, the, 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 here's the truth of it, and then here's the application. Did I say that wrong? Imperatives. Um, what's the other word opposite of imperatives? Indicatives. There I go. Indicatives, and then the imperatives, right? And so Paul always does that. He, he says, here's truth. Now, here's how you live by that truth. And it always goes back to the truth. And so if we're going to really believe that God's entrusted us with the task of announcing the good news, then we don't need to use gimmicks or tricks or rhetoric and, and all these things that were true in Paul's day and true in our day. He says, go back to verse 2 again. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. You know, one thing that I've noticed as I've studied Scripture, especially when it comes to church leadership, that God always emphasizes character over competence. Now, should a man of God and a woman of God be competent? <laughs> Absolutely. We should know the word, be studying the word, but God emphasizes character. It's, it's critical that character is the main thing in spiritual leadership. Why? Because it's so easy to manipulate people, to abuse spiritual authority and take advantage and manipulate even when you're speaking or giving the gospel. And so, there can be emotional pills or using guilt improperly or, you know, just playing on people's emotions. There's so many ways we can tamper with God's word or make it into being, you know, God's word, you know, is this you give God and then he's going to pour out to you, right? And it's this exchange. I do my part. God does his part. And there's ways that we can tamper with God's word. Friday night was mentioned already, but I was thinking about this as I prepared for Friday night, the Growing Grace campaign that back when I was probably nine or ten years old, that there was, um, uh, we did something called Faith Promise. I believe Grace used to do this at some point. But Faith Promise was a time where you dedicate extra money toward missionaries. Great thing, right? 
over and above your tithes and offerings. We just use the offerings and we ask you to give and we give missionaries that way. But the way that we did it in our church was that you would make the commitment for the year that you were going to do this much per month for the missionaries. And so I, as a nine-year-old, you know, the preacher got up there and he preached and you know, I, I felt really like, oh, man, I need to give to this. And I put some amount of money on my commitment card that I was incapable of doing, right? My little allowance of $5 or whatever a month or every two weeks could not pay $25 a month or whatever it was. And, and, and so at the first month, I did pretty good because I was short-term in my thinking. Like, I got, you know, $25, but I didn't realize I wouldn't have $25 the next month. And so I got myself into this hole, and I was like, what am I going to do? Well, the pastor would stand up the next month, and when it was time to do your faith promise, I remember like verses like Numbers 30, chapter 30, verse 2 were said. And look, when you say these in the King James Version, they, they sound so much more scarier and intimidating. He says, if a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind him, you know, he shall not break the word. I, 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 the pastor was saying these things, and like, oh, I'm breaking my bond, my covenant with God. I'm failing. God's going to strike me dead. I really, truly believe that was going to happen. And whether he knew it or not, this was abusing the word of God, that he was using threats and manipulation in order to get what he wanted to see happen. And we have to be so careful of that. And it may not come across in King James English so threatening, but nevertheless, it can still be manipulative, and we can still attempt to trick people. But Paul says that's not what we do. Look, back at verse 2. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I give you the truth just straightforward, all right? You may not be that impressed by the way I say it, but it's the truth, and I'm giving it to you. I'm not hiding behind theological language or acting like I know everything and I'm better than these super apostles he's going to talk about later on in the book. He just gives the gospel straightforward and relies upon the Holy Spirit and God's word to achieve its intended results. And the Corinthians know this is true. They know that he just didn't fly into town and put on these great oratory skills and then collect money and then head out of town. Paul's ministry was very much built about investing in people's lives. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says, We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but also our lives too. So Paul was invested in people's lives. So people who are truly gospel messengers, you're not just going to proclaim the gospel, you're going to invest in people. And as you fall in love with God's word, it will change you, and you will desire just to give people uh, the truth and, and, and not manipulate and not try to appear like you're something that you're not or hide behind all your learning. You're going to be as simple and straightforward as possible with the gospel. And I found to be true that when people have a good knowledge of the subject matter, it's an art to be simple rather than complex, right? You probably learned that in school. That math teacher that you're like, what? That guy probably didn't know it as good as you thought he did, right? He just couldn't explain it because he didn't know it. He didn't have a really good grasp of it. So when you understand the gospel, when it's personal, when you take it in and it's part of who you are, it comes out in a very simple, straightforward way. And it's not manipulating people. And people who love Scripture and love the Bible, they recognize when, things are be when you're trying to be manipulated. When my daughter Shelby went to Georgia, um, a lot of the friend group that she connected with initially all kind of flocked to this one church in town, okay? And look, theologically, like their doctrinal statement, this church is perfectly solid and fine. But the style of preaching that this church does 
was very practical. It was very like superficial stuff. And she called me one day and she was like, Dad, every sermon is like, here's five things to do, you know, and, and it's very little word and it's just, just a lot of fluff. I was like, well, here's what you should, should do. Don't tell your friends why you're leaving. Don't make a big deal. Just find a church that preaches God's word, a church where you can go and to be fed. And that's what she did. She left and found another church because she was a student of the word. She had been trained up. And so she recognized fluff when she heard it, and she knew that she needed more to keep her going in her Christian walk. Number two, so the, the other obstacle we see, a way we can not present the gospel, is we rely upon human strategies at the expense of God's word. The reason people don't believe, we think that we have to take it upon ourselves to do something crafty or creative or, you know, never been done before. And the truth is, God uses the practical communication of his word. Yes, there's nothing wrong with using illustrations. It's, it can help. Jesus used them a lot. But it's not to hide the truth. It's to present the truth. Present the truth. And so Paul says, look, this message that I'm giving you, this message that I'm preaching, I understand there's eternal consequences for people if they don't believe. Look at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, if it's hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing. So he says, there's eternal consequences if we get up and don't preach the gospel and we just give fluff because it's hidden from the people who need it, the people who are on their way to hell and need salvation. They need Jesus. And so our gimmicks can actually produce the opposite of what we should be attempting to do with the gospel is to show people Jesus, point people to Jesus. And then he says in verse four, there's real satanic resistance to the gospel. And this is one, if you give the gospel or you preach the gospel, this is one that's clear as, the, as, as can be to you. And I just, Mitch gave me an illustration of this this morning and, and didn't even realize it. He gave me an illustration even as he was sharing the gospel. Here, here's the verse. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Satan who's referred to as God. The only time in Scripture he's referred to as a God here, but immediately it makes it clear that his influence is limited to this world or this age in contrast to God's universal sovereignty and who God is. But what has Satan done? He hides the gospel. He distorts the gospel. And I think the number one way, and this is what he and I were talking about this morning, was through this old idea of, like, I've got to work my way. I've got to earn my way. As many times as gospel preachers say, Look, you can't earn it. You can't do it on your own. It's Jesus. That's why he died for you. People still walk out of church, and they're like, I hope I can live good enough today so I can make it in one day. And it's a, it's a self-focus rather than a Jesus focus. It's a focus upon what I'm doing for God rather than what God did for me through Jesus Christ. And once your life is changed and you have a new heart and a new spirit, then you're going to want to live for Jesus. And you're going to be miserable when you're not living for Jesus. And so that's a good sign of whether the gospel has really been brought into your heart or not, right? If you can just live your life any old way and you just are fine and dandy with it, everything's great, that's an issue. That's a problem with your heart. So when God gets a hold of our hearts, sin makes us miserable. We, we just don't find any pleasure in it long term. And so the gospel, Satan uses these tactics and many others. He, he's a liar. He's a distorter of the truth. He wants us to believe lies, and that's his main tactic. So here's why I believe people don't receive the gospel 
from the human standpoint, Christians are not equipped and prepared to engage in spiritual warfare. All right, We're not equipped. We don't think about this battle that exists beyond what is evident and obvious to us each and every day. It's like I just grab my lunch and go to work, right? And, I, you know, 5 o'clock and I'll head home. And then I flip on the TV and I watch the TV for a few hours to recharge for tomorrow. And so all we're doing is thinking about our lives, even though we may not think of ourselves as being self-centered. It's a very much a me-focused way of living. And Satan loves that. And, and he's got you. You're not in the battle. You're not seeing the unseen things that exist out there. The, the, the things that Paul talks about when he says to put on the entire armor of God that you can fight against the, the schemes of the devil because he's working, and it's things that we don't see. It's lying and distorting of truth, and it's things that when we flip the TV on and say, okay, kids, enjoy, we're going to go, and we got some jobs to do in the backyard, and your kids are just taking in lies, and you don't even monitor the situation to see what in the world they're looking at, and Satan's loving it. He's like, well, look, I got this stuff. I can sneak in there anytime I want. This is crazy. Sean showed me a book the other day that has been in the GCA library for about 10 years now, and nobody even called it. It was a little kid's book geared toward probably second graders, and it's promoting this whole woke, my two moms type of attitude, all right? Uh, And it's like, whoa, how did that get in here? This was before we knew, you know, all these companies began to embrace this stuff. It's been around, and Satan's just slipping it in, sliding it in, and here we are as parents. We're just checking out. We're not aware of what's going on. And it's your job in the home, dads particularly, to guard and be mindful of what's going in and out of your kids' ears and mouths. I, yesterday, Michelle and Harrison and I went to Dothan, and we were listening to a book by Douglas Wilson. It's a book on marriage called Reforming Marriage. And he made this statement. When he made this statement, all of us kind of looked at each other and were like, whoa, that was good. He says, a man may not be a vocational theologian, but in his home he must be the resident theologian. A man may not be a vocational theologian like I am, but you better be the resident theologian in your home. Are you doing that, dads? Are you taking the word and studying the word? I don't mean you have to grab a set of commentaries and you don't have to work your way through and you don't have to get systematic theology books. I'm talking about you're in the word and, and people say this a lot, and I'm really happy that they, I guess, are excited. Their kids are learning a lot about Scripture, but I hear this a lot, like, whoa, my kids know a lot more about the Bible than I do. I don't really think that's something to brag about. <laughs> Sorry if I stepped on your toes, but honestly, it's not something to be excited about. You know what it would do for me? It would say, man, I better get in and learn. Because my kid one day is going to start asking me some questions that I'm not going to know the answer to. And I'm not talking about who was Isaac's wife. I'm talking about what you should know, but I'm talking about things of the Scripture where it's, it's a matter of eternal consequences. It's the gospel truth. It's things they should know and understand and how to apply the Word into their everyday life. And so it starts in the home, dads. It starts in the home, moms. And so we focus in on this fact that there is a spiritual warfare that's going on. And then verse 5, it says what's already been said once today. It's not about me. We're not, we're not the main attraction. We're just the person in the outer office. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. C.K. Barnett says that it would be hard to describe Christian ministry more comprehensively in so few words. 
So let me read it again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's our calling. We'll talk more about that at the end. Gospel-driven humility. Just It brings this confidence that it's not about us. It's not, we don't have to be liked by everyone. And for those of us who are rude idols, our approval, that's a hard one to learn. It takes a, a lot of time, and we never fully master it. But we don't have to be liked by everyone. We need to get past those lies and believe the truth about ourselves, what God says about us. You know what God says about us? A verse that I say a lot, and you probably need to memorize. Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Our problem is that we need people more than we love people. We need them to make us feel good, to reinforce us, to validate us, rather than just love them. And God gives us the ability to love. Ed Welch says it this way, the task God sets for us is to need people less and to love them more. And I love that. Need people less, but love them more. How can we do this? 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So love comes from God. Love comes from God. And so we get out of the way. Before it was taken by casting crowns and using a song, somebody said a long time ago, they said, just tell them I'm a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody that can save anybody. I love that. Love that. That's what we are. We're just, we're just nobodies. Get out of the way. We're pointing to somebody. We're outer office staff, right? Okay, let me show you. Let me take you in and show you the guy behind the desk, Jesus Christ. He's the one that can help you. I, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to point you there. But Jesus is the one I'm getting you to. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And so the fourth reason people reject the gospel, Christians make life more about themselves than about Jesus. Christians make life more about themselves than about Jesus. And this comes with even just sharing the gospel. Like we think of all the reasons why we're going to be rejected if we say something. And that's making life about us rather than about Jesus. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And so this leads directly to the answer of how we do live this life, how we live as ambassadors for Christ, how we live and submit to the work of Christ. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's what God said. He said that in the beginning. Let light shine out of darkness. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, our lives fill up with the light of Jesus. And, and as we have Jesus in our lives, and as Jesus just takes control of our lives more and more, and God's love is just poured out for us, that light just shines out of us. That light just shines. The more we make it about Jesus and less about ourselves. So I warned you earlier about turning the slide on, all right? I don't know how many lumens this is, but it's, it's, it's going to be pretty dramatic, all right? So um, let me find the on and off switch here for a second. Some of you guys are like, idiot, there's no on and off switch on that, right? Why? Why? Why is there not an on and off switch on this? Solar light, right. It's a solar light. What does a solar light need? Yeah, it needs the sun. 
And what happens when a solar light is in the sun and it soaks in the sun, then it does what it's meant to do. It radiates. It, it shines. But if you stick this in your closet, it's not going to shine. If you don't put this out in the sun, you'll never see light from this. So how do you expect to shine if Jesus isn't the center of your life, the center of your heart? What I quoted last week, let the word of Christ just fill you up. Walking in the Spirit, letting Jesus just fill you with his love and reflecting upon him and his greatness. And that's why having an intentional time every day kind of spurs us on throughout the day to, to remember and keep those things in mind. And it's not a legalistic check off the list. I did my quiet time. This is, I need my marching orders. I need to meet with Jesus. I know my tendency of the flesh is just to run off and live my life the way I live it. But this is a good heart check for me to soak in the light, to take time where God's grace can pour out on me. And then throughout the day, I'm basking in that light. I'm walking in that light. And that light shines out of me, like Paul said. So, head application. God has given you and I the task of sharing his good news. But the answer is not you, and it's not me. So the heart, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you. Am I self-focused or Jesus-focused? Is my religion Jesus-focused, or is it self-focused, man-focused? Is it works-focused, or is it grace-focused? And here's the hands application. Paul writes, or Luke writes, I'm sorry, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Recalling the words of Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so if we're like, I got my Christianity, I got my faith, I got my church on today, I got my worship on, now I go do my stuff. All you're doing is just like a reservoir that's just collecting water, but there's no outlet to it. And you're not going to feel blessed. You're not going to be blessed. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to burn out really easy. You're going to get offended very quickly. You're going to find reasons not to be part of a body of Christ. You're going to find every reason in the world not to connect with a K group because, you know, I just, you know, I'm not good around people or whatever, you know. And, and you're not opening your life and your heart up, and you're not being a, a stream of God's grace to flow out to other people. And so God says, and it's not just talking about money here. It's more blessed to give, to be a giver than to receive. And Jesus told us that. So what's your life look like? Are you pretty content in that outer office? And when people come, you just kind of sit down. Let me, let me tell you about my day, right? Let me tell you about life. And, and you never point them to the main attraction next, in the next office. It's all about you. Paul says, we need to let the light shine through us and out of us. And how that happens is through the love of Jesus is soaking over us and knowing who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you made us to shine. You said to let our good works just shine before men. They'll see our good works and glorify you. And God, we thank you that our good works don't save us because we can never measure up. But when we put our faith and trust in you, you shine through us. You do what you do, which is point people to the greatness and the love of God the Father. We thank you, Jesus, for, for doing that in our lives. And the Holy Spirit works and, and ministers and gives us encouragement when we're discouraged.
He lifts us up through his word. And God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. And God, I pray you'll help us to be a church that shares you, not because it's the thing to do or we have to or we have a strategy for evangelism, but we do it because we can't help to do it because you've made such a change. You're doing such a wonderful thing in our lives that we can't help but talk about it. And God, we thank you. Help us to be bold. Help us to seek you each and every day and day by day, find our renewal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.